Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John MacArthur once wrote, God's love is not based on how lovable we are, but on the constancy of his own character. God's supreme act of love came when we were at our most undesirable. After, first of all, I have to say, um, Saturday we had an opportunity uh, to take Carson to his camp in Phoenix. Um, but we also, Kim and I had an opportunity to, um, to have dinner with, uh, our previous pastor, Tom and, uh, and his wife, Liz, and it was really great to catch up. Um, and it was kind of unique because, you know, our relationship is different now that I've been a pastor for 10 years because, because now we're more kind of like on the same page. He was a pastor here for seven, you know? Um, and so we, so there are things that he knew that now I understand and, and so we were able to have, you know, more of that kind of like peer conversation. And it was, it was encouraging to me. Um, but after 10 years of ministry and, and counseling and loving God's people and helping them to navigate life and the, the challenges that, that we face uh, as Christians, I can tell you that everything ultimately is a gospel issue. Everything is a gospel issue. Because as Christians, the gospel is just not some doctrine that we believe. It's not just some teaching that we assent to and then we kind of move on with the rest of our life. The gospel is the lens with which we are to see the rest of the world, right? How we parent our children, how we manage our finances, how we, how we work things out in our marriages, how we treat our neighbors around us, how we interact with our, our coworkers and our bosses. All of those things, whether we know it or not, whether we understand it or not, are all gospel issues. All these things are to be seen through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And that actually should then influence and shape how we act and interact with all of those other parts of our lives. Everything from the way that we understand politics and controversial issues, from, from our relationship to our kids' schools and teachers and coaches, all of those things are gospel issues. Some might then ask the question, well, how is that? I mean, isn't just the gospel about, isn't it just about salvation? I mean, there are some churches that have taught it that way. Isn't the gospel just about Jesus, what he did on the earth? Isn't the gospel just about our relationship with God? How does this affect how I spend my money? How does the gospel affect how I interact with my wife and kids? How does that 
affect how I treat the members of my community. Well, the truth is, yes, the gospel is about salvation. And yes, it is about Jesus and what he did on the earth and about our relationship with God. But at its heart, the gospel is about God loving us. And out of that love, he gives us and has given us what we need, even though we are completely undeserving of that. That's the essence of the gospel. God loving us to the point that he gives to us what we need, even though we're completely undeserving of that. That is the gospel. And that truth right there should affect and shape everything. Because just as we have, have been given grace and mercy and forgiveness, we ought to do the same. Give generously grace and mercy and forgiveness. Even to those that we deem unworthy. In fact, if somebody's worthy, then it's not even really grace or mercy. The fact that we are conditioned, we are to continue, the, the fact is, we are continually being lavished with the love of God every day. Even unbelievers, through His common grace, are being lavished with the love of God even though we're completely unworthy of that, and us as, as Christians are lavished with even a greater degree of that. Again, being completely unlovable, God still loved us. And that ought to color how we see everything and everyone in the world around us. It ought to be the lens with how we see all the world and all the people in it. But the heartbreaking truth is for many people who confess Christ. It's, it's not. The gospel is not the lens with which they see the rest of the world besides their faith. And, and this is why there's so much difficulty. This is why there's so much stress in all these other areas of the lives of Christians. This is why so many Christians lack joy in their, in their personal lives. This is why there's so much, such a lack of hope when, when things seem unfair. This is why there's a lack of peace with other people around many of us. Because the fact is, we're trying to live the rest of our lives from a different worldview other than the gospel. But the problem is, is whether, whenever as a Christian we adopt a worldview that is different from the gospel, what happens is we end up trying to walk in two different worlds. I want you to think about this. When you enter into the kingdom of heaven, we still live in this world, but we don't have to walk and act in this world. It's like trying to be part of the kingdom of heaven in one part of our life, but then in the other part of our life, we're trying to then be conformed to the rest of the world. And what we see is there's inevitable conflicts in our lives. If you attempt to live that way, as many of us do, we're going to encounter all kinds of resistance and tension and frustration because as Christians, our entire nature and character, if you've been born again, your nature and character has been changed and shaped by the gospel, by the love of God. The thing is, is if you're a Christian today, then you are not what you once were. You're a new creation, as the word says. 
with a new heart and new affections and a new worldview from which then we are to, to navigate the rest of this world. But many of us struggle. We don't view all the parts of our lives through the lens of the gospel, right? And, and the reason for that is that, that so many Christians, even though they've heard the gospel and believe the gospel, many who profess Christ simply lack a full understanding of the gospel. That's, that's been the truth that I've seen. That's why there's so much bad theology in the church. That's why there's so many well-intentioned Christians who embrace false teaching. That's why there's still so much strife in Christian homes. That's why there's so much conflict even in the church at large. So many people who profess Christ struggle to live with a gospel-shaped worldview because so many Christians simply lack a full, robust understanding of the gospel with which to see and understand the rest of the world. And the reason for that is because either they don't really know the gospel or they have forgotten the gospel. Or perhaps they're just simply failing to rehearse and mem uh, memorize the gospel. Or worse, they have bought into what the culture has sold them, believing that the gospel is only for part of your lives. I mean, that's what the culture is trying to push on us today. Oh, you can be a Christian, you just need to keep that at home. You can be a Christian, but that's for your church, not for the public life. The reason why I know this to be true is because after 10 years of pastoral ministry and asking people the basic question, what is the gospel? Or how are we made right with God? Or how do we live in light of the gospel? Most people either cannot, either they don't know the gospel or they can't, or, or, or they do know it, they just don't know it well enough to explain it, or they just simply really don't understand it. And I don't say this to be harsh or mean. I say this because it's the truth. If there's one thing that ails the church at large the most is the fact that we just, so many people don't understand the gospel and understanding what it means to know it and to, and, and to have it internalized. This is the issue that, that deserves our, our full attention. This is the issue that we must face. We as Christians must fully understand and know the gospel. And we must have the ability to see how that gospel shapes and influences the rest of our lives. That's why we continually talk about the gospel. I saw a transformation in the, the lives of my youth group when we went from talking about teenage topics to focusing on the gospel. We may not have raging pizza parties, but I know that there are a group of kids that are about to grow up and become adults that can tell you what the gospel is. That's why we continually talk about the gospel here at First Baptist Church is because it's the foundation on which we build the rest of our lives. And this is why we've been in this extended series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel. It's because as a church family corporately and as Christians individually, we, if we are to become the people that God has called us to become, and if we are to live the lives that God has commanded us to live, we need to be steeped and soaked and saturated in the gospel. It needs to become a part of us. The gospel as Christians needs to be the air that we breathe. It needs to be completely second nature to us. It needs to be the, the blood that runs in our veins. It needs to become the very beating of our hearts, even more a part of us than our own DNA. 
The entire world and all its constituent parts can only truly, hear me, can only truly be understand and lived the way that God would have you live through the gospel. The gospels become our native tongue and our default way of thinking. It is to be the background of all of our thought process that, that influences everything. It's to be the compass and the guiding light of our lives. Because everything for the Christian, everything for the Christian is a gospel issue. Everything. So with that, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And as we make our way that way, let's just take a moment and remind ourselves of where we are in the context, because the context is very important for this. And if you remember, as we talked about, Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church to explain what the gospel is. That's really the basis of the letter. He wrote this letter to fully unpack what the gospel is, the blessings that the gospel gives, and how we are to live in light of the gospel. And so Paul opens up and says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, in, it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, I mean, excuse me, then in chapter 1 to chapter 4, what Paul does is he explains what the gospel is. He takes those four chapters to unpack what the gospel is. It's the bad news that all of mankind, because of sin, is under God's wrath and judgment. And it's the good news uh, of what God has done for us as mankind that we can be justified and spared the wrath and judgment of God. Paul is painstakingly making it clear that we are made right with God in our relationship with Him only by faith alone through the finished work of Christ alone. That's the gospel. And then beginning in chapter 5, Paul transitions from what the gospel is and he begins to explain the blessings that, that God bestows on those who believe the gospel. You know, after explaining and helping us to see what the gospel is, what does the gospel accomplish for us? Paul explains the first blessing, the first thing that we have from the gospel, one of the benefits of the gospel is that those who are justified by faith have peace with God. And we've talked about that, what all that means. Not only is hostility ended, but we've been reconciled into a personal relationship with God. Not only that, we also have access to God and His presence. We also have access to His grace, and then we have hope of a future inheritance. Those are the things that Paul has been unpacking for us. But even more than that, Paul says, because the gospel, mankind can even rejoice in suffering. He says, knowing that suffering produces in us perseverance. And that perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope will not put us to shame. Right? And the reason for that is because we know that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and pours out His love into our hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, actively reveals to the believer that God really does love us. And then right after that, then Paul says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the thing to remember here is the word for is a conjunction. And what that means for us is we can't just start here and then take off 
as if this is a standalone verse. There is a connection here that we must keep in mind. It tells us that we need to keep in mind the context of what he's, what he's saying here. Right? And so he says, for or because, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the first thing we keep in mind is that everything that Paul had said in chapter 5 points to and is related to this statement. Peace with God, access to God's presence and grace, a future hope, and the giving of the Holy Spirit who is pouring out God's love in our hearts. All of those things is related to this statement about Christ dying for the ungodly. All of those benefits that Paul has just unpacked is related to what he just said here about Christ dying for the ungodly. Why? Because that's the gospel. Christ dying for us is the central truth and is the basis for all the blessings that we have in Christ and more. We have the blessing of the gospel, not because of what we could do for God. That's the truth. We have the blessings of the gospel because not because we have somehow earned God's favor. We have these blessings because Christ, the God, God the Son, came into the world and died for us. That's the central truth. And again, reminding us that salvation is the blessing, excuse me, salvation and all of the blessings of salvation are of and from the Lord. It is all the work that He has done for us. A work that we receive by faith, a work that we rest in. But there's something more that Paul's driving at here. Something deeper. Notice Paul says, while we were still weak, the word weak literally means without vigor. It means without strength. The idea that Paul's trying to convey here is that we, we, were, we were helpless. That's the idea. Paul is saying that we were helpless to save ourselves. And so to understand, Paul isn't just communicating simply the idea of weakness. He's communicating the idea of inability. He's communicating to us what Paul said elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the kind of weakness that Paul's talking about. We were without strength. We were without vigor. We were weak. And the reason for that is because we were dead in our sins, enslaved to our sin nature, carrying out the desires of our flesh. We were truly, in every sense, helpless before God, helpless to do anything about our own condition. And Paul is saying, while we were in that condition, while we were completely helpless to do anything for ourselves, it was then that Christ died for the ungodly. Now, who were the ungodly? Well, look in the mirror. All of us, we are the ungodly. And this word ungodly is from, from the Greek word, a seabon, and it literally means without respect. 
Properly, it means that we have a lack of reverence or failing to honor that which is sacred. That's the idea behind the word ungodly. It's blatant disregard or disrespect. The thing that Paul is communicating here is not only were we sinners dead in our sins, we were not ignorant of what we were doing. We understood the things that we're doing is an offense, an affront to God, and we just don't care. We were truly ungodly. We lived and behaved in a way that was blatantly dishonoring and disrespectful to God's holy nature. We lived our lives spurning and rejecting God's grace, actively hating Him. And this is what Paul said in the beginning. This is the indictment that Paul opened up with in chapter 1. right? If you remember, this is what exactly what Paul said. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we've said, there is no such thing as an atheist. We all knew, everyone knows that God exists. We just hated Him. Mankind suppresses the truth about God and denying Him. And that was all of us. Paul even goes further and says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, because we all know that He exists, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They disrespected Him. They were irreverent toward Him. Neither did they give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, actively traded the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is what Paul means by ungodly. He means vain and arrogant and irreverent and hateful towards God. And what Paul is saying is while we were helpless and while we were openly and willfully rebelling against God because we hated him, it was then that Christ died for us. But let that truth sink into your heart. While you and I were completely irreverent and distrustful and hateful towards God, while we spat on His grace, while we did horrific evil against Him, Christ died for us. And notice Paul says that he did this at the right time. Now, some people will say this is a reference to history, that, that historically speaking, Christ died at the right point in history to accomplish the will of God. And, and yes, there is truth to that, right? Because God is the one who's in control of history. We know that, that God is sovereign and completely in control of all the details of history. But there's still something more to this. The Greek word that Paul uses here means at the proper time or at the, the fitting time. And the idea isn't just related to chronological time. It's, it's also related to the right circumstances. You see, the point that Paul is making here is that Christ died at the right time because Him dying for us, while we were weak and ungodly, proves that salvation is of God and not of us. 
what we see here is God is the one who took the initiative to rescue us. God is the one who paid it all before we could even be worthy of being considered for having it paid for. God is the one who had mercy on us, even though that we were in the process of hating him. And what this proves is God's grace then precedes, precedes faith. Grace always comes first. This is the truth we ought to come back to over and over and over again. This is the well that we need to draw from time and again when we're weary and burdened in our hearts. Our salvation is 100% of and from God. Because unless God shows us grace, we're hopeless. Unless God has compassion on us, we are, we are lost. Unless God of his own accord and his own glory has grace on us, we are destined for the hell that we rightly deserve. Because on our own, we are completely, what? Helpless and ungodly. But what Paul tells us, even though that we were horrid, pitiful creatures who are corrupt in all of our faculties, de depraved in nature, even though we lived blasphemous lives cursing his very goodness, God in his grace sent Christ to die for us. Everett Harrison, in his commentary, is very helpful. He writes, God does not wait as some thought for us to produce sufficient and acceptable levels of righteousness before he acts to save. Quite the contrary, he acts just at the just the right time, at the time of our manifest helplessness and captivity to sin. The right time was to demonstrate that he did it all. God at the right time, when there was nothing redeeming about us, when there was nothing we could do to make God love us, when we were selfish and hateful toward him, God in his sovereign will did the things for us that we need, that we couldn't do for ourselves. And he, according to his own plan, sent Christ to die for us. And again, that's the gospel. And then Paul writes, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. And this particular verse in the past for me has kind of caused me to struggle a little bit um, because there's a tendency for us to get hung up on the vocabulary here and try to decide, well, what's the difference between a righteous person and a good person? And what, is the, what does that mean? And well, wait a minute, um, how can Paul say that we can die for a righteous person if no one's righteous, no, not one, right? The truth is, the distinctions that Paul is making here isn't actually really the issue. He's not, he's not making a theological statement about righteousness. His point in this verse is actually really, really very simple. Again, notice the word for. Right? That's, the, that's the clue for us. This is critical for understanding. It's a conjunction that connects these thoughts together. And so the way this works is this. Christ died for us, even though we were weak and ungodly, right? And then, right, he says, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. In other words, humanly speaking, most people will not die for another person at all. The reason for that is our, our self-preservation instinct is really very strong. That's why we call people who will run into burning buildings what? Heroes, right? It's, it's against our nature to be willing to die for someone else. 
We don't typically volunteer for that unless there's a compelling reason. I mean, when a person gives his life for another person, he will almost always do so for someone he or she values. Am I right? Humanly speaking, they would be considered a good person. Bless you. The point is, we will die for people we think are worthy of dying for. If you're a parent, you'll die for your kids. It's not even a question, right? If you're married, you'll die for your spouse. Most of you, maybe. Most of us would die for our friends. We will die for those that we think are noble and honorable. Soldiers will die for other soldiers because they value those soldiers. That's just who they are. To them, they are the good people. They're the righteous people. Humanly speaking, we will die for others, but only if they have value to us. And Paul's point is this. Those we die for are worthy of someone dying for them. They, in some way, are deserving. But this is not how it is with God. God did not wait for us to be deserving. God did not wait for us to be valuable. Christ died for us in spite of the fact that we're completely unworthy. That's the difference. Christ died for us while we were still hating Him. Which then ought to cause us to ask the question, why would He do that? Because humanly speaking, we would understand dying for someone we love, dying for someone who loves us, It'd be hard for us to even consider dying for someone who hates us. Why would he do this? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's love. It's love. God loves us. That's the truth. Oftentimes we kind of forget it's the basic one that we ought to be holding on to. That God loves us. As Paul says, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that truth soak into your heart and your mind. God shows his love for us while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. It's just now that we're getting to the very heart of the matter here. This is where we get to the point where we see the reason for our hope. This is the place where we ought to be moved to rejoice. This verse ought to be enough for us to worship God for the rest of our lives. We come to a verse that all of us should know and memorize and recite to ourselves every single day, especially when you're struggling in your relationship with God. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, by the way, is the full expression of what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. God so loved the world that He did what people who love others do. He gave. By the way, the essence of love is giving, right? That's the character of, of love is to give. 
You love your children, and so you give them everything you have, right? You love your spouse, you give to them. Your friends, all of your relationships. So much more with God. God so loved the world that he did what people who love each other do. He gave, and he gave what was most precious to him. His son, who in turn gave his own life for those who believe in him so they wouldn't suffer the wrath of God, but have eternal life. This right here is the climax of Paul's explanation of the gospel. This is the crescendo of his gospel. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the place I think we all need to linger for a while today. This is the truth that that we need to hear. This is the truth I need to hear. This is the truth that you need to hear. Let the grace of God wash over you today. Let God's mercy restore you. Drink deep of the love of God because God showed His love for you. Even while you were hating Him, Christ died for you. Now the word that Paul uses here that we translate shows, some translations say demonstrate, means to bring something together. It actually has, it's similar to the root word that we have for synthesis. It means to bring something together. And the idea that Paul is conveying is that God is building a case for his love is what he's doing, right? He brings together the facts. He brings together the circumstances in such a way that not only demonstrate that God loves us, but make it absolutely clear that he loves us. It's an airtight case. It's obvious. You can't miss it. Christ historically dying on the cross for us before we could ever turn to Him is undeniable, indisputable proof that God indeed loves us. And so if you ever find yourself wondering, because I know that you're going to, I know that I have, does God even love me? The answer is a resounding and overwhelming yes! Yes! How do you know? Look at the cross. God left us with no doubt. That's why you can stand so firm. He made it absolutely clear that He loves us because Christ, even when we were in the hardest of hearts, rejecting Him, He died for us. God's love for you is as clear as the noonday sun on a cloudless day. You cannot miss it. And the word that Paul uses for love here is even more helpful because it's not the idea of a fickle emotion or feeling. It's the agape love. It's the love of the will. It's the love of 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 choosing. God loves us not because He simply feels it, because He has willed it. He has chosen to love us. The love that that He has for us is by His own nature and character. It's it's, It's a love that is not earned or deserved. It's a love that is given because He is gracious. Again, as John MacArthur wrote, he says, God's love is not based on how lovable we are, but on the constancy of his own character. God loves us because that's who God is. 
And Paul says God demonstrates that kind of agape love for us. We who are weak and incapable of, of changing our own hearts, we ungodly who, are, who loved our sin so much that we would mock the Son of God on the cross, that is, that is the ones he died for because of his love. In fact, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And the word sinners here um, simply means those who fall short of the things that God approves. It means to miss the mark, right? Practically speaking, we know what it is, right? Those who are vile and broken, those who are covered up in their transgressions, which again is all of us. And But the verb that says, the, the verb that we translate as were, where Paul says we were, we were sinners, is actually not the best rendering of the text. I mean, it's accurate, but, it, but there's an idea that's missing here. The word that gets translated as were is actually a present tense word. It's not past tense, it's present tense. And it's what we call an active participle. And again, I know you, how much you love Greek grammar, but, but, but the idea is important here. What this means is the action of the verb were sinners was taking place at the same time of the main verb, Christ dying. Or in other words, as Christ was dying, we were actively sinning. It's the idea that's being put forward here. Right? This is the, Paul, the point that Paul's trying to make here. Even with us at our very worst, even while we were covered up in the worst kind of putrid sin, even while we were in the depths of our hatred of God, in that moment when there, there was no reason for God to love us and, and had every reason to consign us all to hell, in that moment of our greatest ugliness is when Christ died for us. That is the thought behind this verse. In fact, that's the thought behind the verse in the hymn. It says this, it says, Behold the Lamb upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking boy voice call out from amongst the scoffers. While we were scoffing and hating, Christ was dying for us. The picture that Paul is painting here is a graphic picture. Behold the Lamb of God on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God beaten to a bloody pulp. While Christ was, was being beaten with a cat of nine tails, we were fulfilling the lust of our flesh is the idea that he's conveying here. Picture Christ in his physical weakness carrying his cross to Golgotha. All the while we're engaged in every form of malice and indecency and heresy. Imagine the nine-inch nails being driven into the hands of our king while we lie and cheat and gossip and blaspheme his holy name. This is the picture that he's painting for us. Imagine Christ lifted up on the cross suffering because he's slowly suffocating to death all the while feeling every ounce of weight from his body on his hands and feet, while we are doing everything possible in our lives to destroy the image of God in ourselves and other people. 
Picture Christ, the Son of God, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While millions of us lay our children at the altar of Planned Parenthood so that we can dismember those children for our own selfish reasons. While millions more give their assent to murdering children now, even after birth. Picture Christ with blood pouring down his face, saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing as we actively curse him and mock him and revile him and despise him. Picture Christ heaving and struggling and gasping for air and then finally giving up his last breath that tore the veil in two while we are actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, trying to deny that he even existed. That's the picture that Paul is painting here. While we are at our worst, with no redeeming value whatsoever, being completely unlovable, God proves, God demonstrates his love for us by killing his own son for us. As the prophet had said, God was pleased to crush him. How is it even possible? Because God loves us. Again, as John MacArthur says, God's supreme act of love came when we were at our most undesirable. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's the truth that ought to shape our entire lives. Not just Sunday morning. Not just those moments when we feel a little bit pious and we pray. This should shape everything about our lives. So what do we do with this? First of all, we need to believe this. Nothing else matters if you don't. Right? If you don't believe the gospel, then nothing else matters. Your best life is now, because it won't be later. If you don't believe this, nothing else matters. So we need to believe this. We need to believe the gospel. Jesus said, the time is now, the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And the promise is those who believe, those who put their faith in Christ are immediately justified. And when they're justified, as we said, they what? Have what? They have peace with God. Their sins are washed away forever. They're, they've been granted a new righteous standing before God. They've been adopted into the family of God. And then you have a future hope the moment you believe. And so always, as always, the call is repent and believe the gospel. If you've not put your faith in Christ, do so today. Believe the gospel. And if you want to know more how to do that, then come talk to me. Or you can talk to, to Brother Fernando or Brother Hugh. Talk to the deacons in this church. Come and get prayed for. We will pray for you and walk you through how to put your faith in Christ. It's the most important thing is to believe the gospel. But if you've believed the gospel, Christian, rest in the gospel. Rest in the gospel. It was years after being a Christian that somebody actually told me to rest in the gospel. Once I believed the gospel, then somebody gave me a list of things. Okay, now that you're a Christian, here's what we don't do, and here's what we do do, right? Which then 
I want to please God, so I'm trying to get busy doing that. Come to find out I can't do that either. You need to rest in the gospel. You need to rest and trust the fact of what God said, that if you believe, then you're justified. And if you're justified, you have peace with God. Period. End of story. That you're saved by grace through faith apart from your works. Trust in Him and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart as you read and encounter the Word. God will change you and shape you from the inside out. The God that you once hated, you will love. And the sin that you once loved, you will begin to hate. Rest in the Gospel. And I know that some of you have been going through some really tough stuff lately. And I know that there are times that you're going to feel completely alone. like It's just like the whole world against you. That you're going to feel like even your friends don't understand what you're going through. There are going to be even times that you wonder even if God is there. Right? But what you need to understand is God's promises are sure because God himself is faithful. And the promise is that if you will believe the gospel, then you have peace with God and that you have all that you will ever need. And the promise is he will never leave you or forsake you. And the promise is that he will do all things for his glory and for your good. Right. So rest in the gospel. Can I get an amen to that? All right. Third, be shaped by the gospel. Right. This is not a, a to-do list. All right. This is allowing God to shape you. Right. You've been given more grace than you can possibly fathom. Oceans and oceans and oceans of grace that God has poured out onto you. Right? The idea is this. Out of your gratitude, give that grace away. Begin to allow God to change your heart for other people. Ask Him to show you how He sees them. Pour out grace on other people. When, especially those who don't deserve it, right? Because you didn't deserve it. That's your justification for being gracious to other people. And I want you to know, I understand, sometimes that's really, really hard. I mean, we all love grace when it's being given to us. We don't really like it so much when we got to give it away. But that grace should shape all of our relationships then. Our, with our spouses, with our kids. I'm going to tell you right now, our kids need a lot of grace. They're growing up in a world that's just absolutely crazy right now. Right? They're facing things that you have never faced. They're dealing with things you have never dealt with. Right? They're dealing with pressures that you wouldn't even imagine 10 years ago they would be facing. They need lots and lots and lots and lots of grace and mercy and unconditional agape love. Let the gospel shape you. And then finally, share the gospel. Share it. God has given you the most incredible gift that you could possibly have. And he has said there is plenty for all. Like the old song said, there's plenty good room in my father's kingdom. There's plenty to go around. If you truly believe what you believe, if you truly believe you have been set free, if you truly believe that you have found life and you've been given all that you ever need, then give it away. And I'm not saying that we got to be the people who are the obnoxious ones that stand out with sandwich boards hollering at people, okay? I'm not saying that you have to go and 
knock on everybody's door and tell them why they're theologically wrong for the things that they believe. What I'm saying is you ought to love your neighbor well enough to say, you know, I just got to tell you about what Christ has done for me and share with them the truth of the gospel that God created all of us in His image to have a relationship with Him. But that image was destroyed, and that, that, that relationship was destroyed because of our sin that we willfully participate in. Right? Putting us in a position to where we were helpless and hopeless, rebelling against God, not even being able to, to choose Him if we wanted to. But God, in His grace and His mercy, sent Jesus Christ into the world to do things that we could never do. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and He died on the cross to make atonement for our sin. And rose Him three days later, proving that He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He can do what He promised, which is to save us from our sin and the wrath of God. All we need do then to have all of those and avail ourselves of the promises of the gospel is what? Believe, repent, turn from your old life and your self-righteousness and put your hope and your faith completely on Christ. That's the message. By the way, all of what's happening in the world around us that is sideways, there's only one long-term solution and that is this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the world needs more of is Jesus. And as Paul will later say, we're his ambassadors. Let us go share that hope. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.